John chapter 3 this evening. Over the next four messages, we're going to take some time to explore the active participants of salvation. If you've noticed the uh, title of our message is the Holy Spirit affecting salvation to all who believe. Uh, I gave a little bit of a, a precursor to this on Tuesday after Peyton's testimony about her spiritual birthday on Wednesday, and I thank the Lord for that. And it, it was a, a wonderful, got me really excited about these next four weeks. Because these next four weeks, we're going to be exploring salvation in depth. And we're beginning exactly where Christ begins, with the Holy Spirit. Now, as we do so, we'll find that salvation, like other spiritual exercises, like other spiritual um, transactions, is a transaction that engages all three members of the Godhead, with the end result of bringing a man or a woman out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of God. We will learn of this salvation from the mouth of Jesus Christ Himself, as he speaks to Nicodemus, a Pharisee and a leader of the Jews. Now, as we do so, we will move in order. The order that Jesus presents salvation is the order we're going to look at it. He begins with the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Then he speaks of his own ministry, the Son. And then he speaks of the Father. And then, of course, we end up with that great declaration of our own responsibility in this act of salvation, which has nothing to do with saving ourselves and everything to do with accepting the gift that's already been purchased for us. So this evening, as we look at this, we're going to begin with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is no doubt the most enigmatic member of the Godhead. Enigmatic there meaning enigma or mysterious. He's a mysterious member. His ministry is one that is specifically determined to point away from himself specifically determined to point to the other members of the Trinity. He is specifically determined to keep himself out of the picture in many ways. And today we're going to learn about the mysterious ministry of the Holy Spirit in salvation through this concept that we have come to know as being born again, the new birth, and one that is as vital to understand as it is mysterious even to those of us who are well-versed in the scriptures. And so this evening we'll see three principles. Three principles regarding the work of the Holy Spirit in salvation through being born again. Let's go ahead and read the entire passage uh, regarding Nicodemus. We'll read verses, well, we won't read the whole thing. We'll read through verse 13. We'll only preach through verse 8 this evening. Let's read uh, John 3, 1 through 13. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb? And be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of the water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I say unto thee, Ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. That's where we'll finish this evening, but let's read through verse 13. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, 
Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, We speak that we do know, and testify that we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things, and ye believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you heavenly things? And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. The first principle we see regarding the new birth this evening, the principle, the concept of being born again, is number one, new birth is necessary for salvation. New birth, being born again, is a necessary component of salvation. In some ways, I'm almost, it's almost somewhat misleading to say that because the new birth is salvation. They are one and the same. Necessary, I, I say that new birth is necessary, but it is one and the same. The new birth is salvation. It is to be born again. And we see that in verses 1 through 3. The narrative of John 3 opens with an introduction to a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus, according to verse 1, was a ruler of the Jews. We'll find out in a moment he was as well a Pharisee. The account comes after the confrontation that Jesus had with the Jewish leaders. You remember that from John chapter 2, that there was this great conf confrontation about the authority of Jesus Christ. And so these leaders had confronted Jesus Christ on his authority. What gives you the authority to do what you are doing? We mentioned last week that this was kind of a diversion tactic. Since they couldn't compete with the truth of Jesus Christ, they were going to distract the people from the truth that Jesus Christ was doing and proclaiming by asking him by what authority he did what he did. Does a man need authority to preach the truth of God? Does a man need his own authority to stand upon the truth of God? And yet, Jesus Christ did manifest great authority. And they were purposefully questioning that authority. As was mentioned in that sermon, the act of Jesus Christ is truth, was truth, wholly consistent with the truth of God. Yet Nicodemus comes to Jesus now by night, sometime after the events in the temple, and makes a statement which gives us as readers great insight into the true nature of the contention that was forming between Jesus and these Jewish leaders. You can see the storm clouds on the horizon. You can see these Jewish leaders as they are being offended. You could see it in John the Baptist's ministry. You could see it as they were asking him about his authority. You can see it now as Jesus Christ is contending for truth in the temple. And it'll be even clearer as the Pharisees go back to John at the end of John chapter 3 and contend with him further. And so we can see this great contention, this controversy arising. We've talked about it in our own settings how we've seen the Pharisees, the Sadducees, why they're upset with Jesus Christ. Well, even this morning, we talked a little bit about how they rejected Jesus Christ's ministry because they were so insistent upon clinging to their own sacrificial system, to their own laws, to their idols of the law that they had set up in their own lives and to the power that it gave them in the country, which was a big part of it. Now, Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. I would like to mention, first of all, that there is not necessarily significance to the time in which he visited. I've heard before, and I don't necessarily argue against the fact that he came at night because he didn't want others to know. He didn't want the Jewish leaders to know. It's a possibility. Perhaps it was that he feared the other Jews. Perhaps it was that he feared the other leaders. But it could have also been that he um, didn't have time at any other part of the day to really engage in a conversation with Christ. Throughout the day, Jesus Christ would have been very busy. 
He, according to what we know from John 2, was performing miracles at the Passover feast. He didn't just come overturn the tables of the money changers, whip the animals out of the temple, tell the dove sellers to leave, and then he was done for the day. As we understand, many believed on him for the miracles which he did. And so he was doing miracles. He was performing great works. He was a busy man. Perhaps night was the only time where Nicodemus knew he could get a one-on-one conversation with Christ. One-on-one being debatable. We know that um, John, the evangelist, is is the one who wrote this. And it's quite possible he was present at this conversation because of the detail that we see. Um, It's quite quite possible he was present during every detail of the book of John. And so... Nicodemus came by night, possibly out of fear of the Jews, possibly just because that was the best time to come. Regardless, Nicodemus comes to him and notice his statement in verse 2. Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Two very important observations to glean from verse 2. The first one we see that when John used the term, we, we recall from earlier in the, the book, that when John used the term Jews, he did so in reference to the leadership. He was speaking of vocal consensus, but not their individual beliefs. When John spoke of the, the leaders, the Jews, he spoke of that group of men. The Jews contended with Christ. The Jews came and spoke against Christ. The leaders came and spoke against Christ. The Pharisees spoke against Christ. But because we see this group of people, that doesn't mean they were all on the same page. Nicodemus was a man who recognized Jesus Christ's authority and said, I need more information here. He didn't outright reject Jesus Christ. He didn't say, "Uh uh-oh, this is a threat to my power. I need to get rid of him. There was a, a... proper curiosity as to this, the nature of Jesus Christ. See, we as believers can and often do mix up a vocal consensus with individual beliefs. As a matter of fact, this morning in Sunday school, there was a little bit of a, a question in regard to this very thing, how I generalized a little bit and gave a vocal consensus of people as the generalization of everybody and uh, Jenny raised her hand and said, wait a minute, wait a minute, we're not all that way. Not everyone's that way that's in those groups, and we know that. And that's what we're understanding here. Uh, This is often the misconception when we try to lock people into groups and stereotype that group that can make us think that if a person isn't this or that, if he doesn't assume this label or that label then certainly he can't be a Christian or he can't be a born-again believer. Whether it's a certain denomination, if they're Catholic, if they're New Evangelical, if they're Lutheran, they, they certainly can't be a believer. It's this tendency that we have to lock people into groups that because of the error that is in their official theology or in their representative leaders, and so we assume that because their leaders are representing them, or their theology is such that they represent their the-, the theology of their church or the theology of their leaders. We need to remember that individuals are individuals. We need to remember that Nicodemus, though he was a Jew, a leader of the Jews, and a Pharisee, not all the Pharisees were completely 
antagonistic to Jesus Christ. Not all the Pharisees refused to believe and not all the Pharisees were power hungry. Not all the Pharisees had the law as their idol. So that's the first thing we need to understand is that Nicodemus was an individual. And each one of these men, though sometimes they're lauded into groups, were individuals with an individual choice and an individual responsibility to make the choice regarding Christ. Second, we also see, and we need to take note of this, the plural pronoun that Nicodemus uses. He says, Rabbi, we. This is important. Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. Who is the we? Nicodemus is indicating here that he was not alone in his recognition of Jesus Christ's authority. He was not alone in his recognition that Jesus had to have been from God. He was not alone in recognizing that Jesus Christ had truth on his side and he had authority through demonstration of power. Perhaps there were many others who did not agree with the leadership that was questioning Jesus' authority. Or perhaps, and this is what I believe, perhaps Nicodemus was admitting to the reality that though the leaders of the Jews have openly questioned Christ's authority and they have already shown signs of rejecting his authority and his ministry, in truth, there was not a man among them who did not realize that Jesus was from God. But they were suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. And as we look throughout the book of John, what we will see is that these men, these Pharisees, these Jewish leaders had no, (laughs) that they had no excuse for not knowing that Jesus Christ was God. But they refused it. They rejected it. And remember what we said from the beginning of the book of John, that is a theme that runs throughout this book. It is not that men don't see the light, it's that when they see the light, they don't want the light. They prefer darkness. Men loved darkness rather than light. When the light came into the world, he came into his own, and his own received him not. It's not that they didn't know him, it's that they did not receive him. They didn't want him. And I believe that's what we see here. Nicodemus comes and he he says something that's very insightful for us. We know that you are from God. There's not a man on that Sanhedrin council that doesn't know that you are from God. But those Sanhedrin are going to fight for their power. They're going to fight for their political power. They're going to fight for their wealth. They're going to fight for their positions. They don't want you here because you are shaking things up. They're going to reject them. Jesus' answer to Nicodemus is somewhat peculiar, is it not? Nicodemus says, we know that you're from God, and Jesus immediately says, verily, verily I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I don't normally do this, but if we could get interactive for just a moment, can anyone tell me what verily means? We see it a lot in our scriptures. Truly, truly, very good, truly, 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 to be sure. Mark it down. When it's repeated in particular, remember um, from our Tuesday nights, oftentimes we kind of delve into the Hebrew a little bit because we're in the Psalms. And I told you that Hebrew does not have emphatic words. We have emphatic words in our English language, and the Greek does too. Uh, Words where we say many and most. We know that most is more than many. Most has more emphasis. Hebrew didn't have those words those degrees of words. 
If they wanted to describe something as more emphatic, they repeated themselves. So Jesus Christ here saying, verily, verily, he's saying, mark this down because this is truth. That's why in Isaiah chapter 6, when we hear the, when we, we see Isaiah looking at the, the seraphim and they were crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. That triple repetition is very emphatic in the Hebrew, very emphatic. Basically, they're saying he's most is holiest, but they don't say that in Hebrew. They say holy, 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 and it sounds better anyway. And so, verily, verily, Jesus Christ saying, mark this down, this is truth. This is absolute truth. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. As I was studying this passage and reading up, some expositors feel as though a piece of the conversation is missing here. They say, well, this question seems so strange, or this answer seems so strange to Nicodemus' statement that there must be a piece missing from the conversation. I don't think so. I think that we have the conversation in full here, because if you think about the undertone of Nicodemus' statement, it would have been uh, more than sufficient for Jesus Christ to know what Nicodemus' problem was, to know where Nicodemus was going with this conversation. See, Nicodemus and others, probably the entire sect of the Jews there, they see that Jesus is sent from God, yet what he is doing is in opposition to what the leaders teach and preach. They claim, these leaders are the ones that claim to represent the law of God. Therefore, they claim to represent God himself. So how is it that one that comes from God is openly opposed to the spiritual leaders of the day? That is what Nicodemus was saying, was he not? He comes and he says, Rabbi, we know you're from God because no man can do what you're doing. But that whole statement must be colored in light of what the Jews had just done, which was question his authority. Why are they questioning his authority if they know he's from God? Do you see the dichotomy here? Do you see why Nicodemus came and why Jesus Christ would have known immediately where Nicodemus was going with this question? What are you doing, Jesus? What are you preaching? What are you teaching? What is the significance of what you are doing here? Because it's, it's not what we would expect out of Messiah. It's not what we would expect out of our King. Jesus' reply was a straightforward statement regarding the new dispensation that was about to come into the world. This new reality found through grace. That for a man to see the kingdom of God, he must be born Again, Now, needless to say, this statement confused Nicodemus. We as believers quite often use this phrase, born again, to the extent that we have associated it completely with the regenerative work of salvation. When we think of the idea of being born again, it's natural for us to think of being saved. Peyton, in her testimony on Tuesday night, said... Uh, specifically, and that's what brought it up in my heart about John 3, she said, I am, have been thinking a lot about being born again. That was the concept she used. She didn't even mention salvation. She said being born again. See, we use this term synonymous, but imagine with me a man like Nicodemus who knew the scriptures well, being told by the self-proclaimed Messiah that if he truly wanted to be part of God's kingdom, he needed to be born two times. That would have been strange. See, Jesus gave no context. The context is coming. He just said, you need to be born again. 
How strange. If we can detach from our minds the meaning of that in salvation, what it means is you need to be born a second time. That is a very strange statement. So Jesus states very emphatically, you must be born again. The new birth is necessary for salvation, necessary to see the kingdom of God. As we continue in this conversation, we'll see secondly, the second principle in verses 4 through 6, the new birth is a spiritual transaction. First, the new birth is necessary for salvation. It is salvation. Second, the new birth is a spiritual transaction. Verses 4 through 6. Following Jesus' positive assertion, verily, verily, I say unto you, you must be born again, Nicodemus questions Jesus on the meaning of this statement. We said, naturally, Nicodemus would be confused. Now, we must understand that his confusion here is not indicative of a heart of unbelief, but of his ignorance. It's not indicative of him rejecting Christ's teaching. It's just indicative of him not understanding Christ's teaching. However, that being said, it does unequivocally reflect the natural failure on the part of the Jewish leaders to connect the dots between the coming of Messiah and the promise of renewal found in Jeremiah 31-33. What Jesus Christ was doing here is he was connecting the salvific work that he was bringing to the promises of God in Jeremiah 31, where God promised that God would put a new law into the hearts of Israel, that he would give them a new heart, that he would put a new law in their hearts, and that they would follow his law, that they would obey his commands. Ezekiel 18.31 and 26.26, uh, 26, God tells Israel that he will give them a new heart and a new spirit. Take away their stony heart, and he said, give them a heart of flesh. Give them a heart that is moldable. Give them a heart that's no longer hard against him. And the Jews should have recognized that Messiah was going to come and bring something very new. Because Jeremiah 31 taught it. Ezekiel 18 and 26 taught it. But they had failed to put those pieces together. Because they were so busy worrying about Messiah coming and being a political conqueror. For the nation of Israel. These promises should have stirred within every Jew a recognition that Messiah would come and change them. Not change the political environment not change the economic environment. Messiahs wanted to come and change them. He wanted to prepare their hearts for his earthly reign. He had to change them before he could change the political climate. He had to change them before he could change everything else around them. They needed to be changed first. And so Nicodemus, rather than understanding the spiritual intent of Jesus' words, attempted to interpret them from a physical perspective. How can, it be how can a person be born, there we go, when he is old? How can he be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? So we see, as we have seen before, and we will see again in the book of John, that the line separating those who believe from those who do not believe is not necessarily drawn based upon how much a person knows, but what he does with the knowledge that he has. The line of belief and unbelief with the disciples was not that they understood everything that Jesus Christ did. How many times did the disciples say, Jesus, what in the world did you just say? Why in the world did you just say that? We have no idea what you just said. 
All the way until his death, they were confused with some of his statements. Even after his death, they were confused with some of the things he told them. It's not always about how much we know, but how we respond to what we know. Nicodemus was just as confused about Jesus' message as were the other Jewish leaders, but the difference is the other Jewish leaders were not at Jesus' door inquiring. He was. They were in their own chambers wondering how they could silence the truth of God. Nicodemus was at the feet of Jesus learning of this new birth. And so the question must be raised in our own hearts. Perhaps you know a great deal about the Bible. Perhaps you do many good things. You live a moral life. You're loyal to the teachings of your fathers. You're loyal to the church. But just like Nicodemus, all of the knowledge in the world, he was a leader of the Jews. He most likely had the entire first five books of the Old Testament memorized. Word for word, verbatim. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, they were all up here for him. But regardless of all he knew, regardless of all of his loyalty, it is not sufficient to affect spiritual change necessary for salvation unless it is coupled with a true belief on the name of Jesus Christ. That's the standard. Not how much we know, but what we do with what we know. Jesus' answer reoriented Nicodemus on the nature of salvation. He teaches him here that salvation is not a transaction of the physical, but of the spiritual. Now, verse 6 is one that is quite commonly used as a proof text in many circles that baptism is necessary for salvation. But notice what I just said leading into this. Jesus Christ is making it very clear in this passage that what he's speaking of is on a spiritual plane. He's not speaking of a physical plane. He's speaking on a spiritual level here. We need to remember that as we go into this verse. See, Jesus states here that a person must be born of the water and of the Spirit. And many people claim, erroneously, that this means that a person must be both water-baptized and Spirit-baptized to be saved. I'm going to teach you through this passage, we're going to draw this passage out and see why that's false. Why this passage is not saying that, that physical water baptism is necessary for our salvation. Now the first reason is most obvious. Because within the context of the passage, Jesus is talking about being born again. He is talking about spiritual change. He is talking about the second birth thus contrasting it with being born the first time. This entire passage is about a contrast between the first birth and the second birth. This assertion then is naturally understood that if Jesus were attempting to draw a contrast between the first birth and the second birth, he would mention both the first birth and the second birth in his argument. That's what you do when you draw a contrast. You say this versus this. This Verse this, and that's exactly what Jesus Christ is doing here. He says, water versus spirit. Water versus spirit. You must be born of the water. You must be born of the spirit. You must be born twice. He's talking about being born here. Born again. Two times we're talking about. He says, must be born of the water. Must be born of the spirit. And so we see that there's a natural contrast being made here. But it gets even more clear as we look into the next verse. See, not only is there a contrast, but in the context, 
Jesus interprets his own statement in the next verse. Look at verse 7. Excuse me, verse 6. No, where am I? Verse 6. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. So let me read verses 5 and verses 6 together. Except a man be born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. See, that second statement is interpreting the first. Jesus Christ is paralleling water with flesh and spirit with spirit. Do you see that? You must be born of the water and of the spirit. That which is flesh is flesh. That which is spirit is spirit. He's interpreting himself. He's saying that the water birth is parallel to flesh. The spiritual birth is parallel to spirit. We're talking about two births. A physical birth and a spiritual birth. Now there is as well a third argument here. That third argument is that in Hebrew culture to speak of being born of water was commonly used to speak of the natural birth. The process of physical birth. And so as we look at culture, as we look at context, as we look at the entire breadth of the argument, we must recognize here that Jesus Christ is not requiring water baptism for salvation. He is speaking of a contrast between natural birth, physical birth, and spiritual birth in order to show Nicodemus that when he's talking about being born again, he's not talking about a second physical birth. He's talking about the physical birth and then the spiritual birth. You must be born again. You must be born of the Spirit. That's what Nicodemus was teaching. His reply was a straightforward statement regarding that. And so there really should be little controversy here. Jesus is not speaking of physical baptism. Water baptism is a requirement for salvation. Really, water baptism is not entered into the conversation at all here. We don't see water baptism come up. We see being born of water, being born of the Spirit, both talking about births, physical birth. The word baptism is found nowhere in this passage because we're not speaking of baptism. He's not talking about baptism. There's nothing about baptism in this passage. We need to remember that. And we need to interpret it in light of what Jesus Christ is saying. Before we leave this point, one more thing that's important to note. That a spiritual transaction is one that is completely outside the authority of the physical. And what do we mean by this? We've made the case, and Jesus Christ is making the case, that the new birth is a spiritual transaction. Can you and I do anything on the spiritual plane? We have a spirit. But see, a spiritual transaction must be transacted by God. It must be done by God. The new birth is a transaction that's initiated by God through the conviction of the Holy Spirit in the life of man. The new birth is a transaction then that is accepted by man through a willful submission to that conviction in belief. The new birth is then a transaction affected by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. And so we see that just like a physical birth, no man is the author of his own spiritual birth. No man would go up and say, yep, I birthed myself. I birthed myself. I didn't have any part in my birth, except I was there. 
My little daughters didn't play a big role in their own birth. They, they were there. They were being birthed. But in much the same way, God is the one that affects our spiritual birth. God is the one that initiates the transaction through conviction of the Holy Spirit. We have to receive it, that free gift of salvation. And then it's God that does the work. As the Holy Spirit works in us, indwells us, and renews us, regenerates us. So, what is the new birth? We have learned about the necessity of the new birth, about the character of the new birth. How would we then describe the nature of being born again? One man said it this way, and I liked it. I'll read you the quote. The change which our Lord here declared needful to salvation is evidently no slight or superficial one. It is not merely reformation or amendment or moral change or outward alteration of life. It is a thorough change of heart, will, and character. It is a resurrection. It is a new creation. It is a passing from death to life. It is the implanting in our dead hearts of a new principle from above. It is the calling into existence of a new creature with a new nature, new habits of life, new tastes, new desires, new appetites, new judgments, new opinions, new hopes, and new fears. All this and nothing less than this is implied when the Lord declares that we all need a new birth. I thought that was a very good statement. We're talking about completely being born again. Everything is new because you're new. You're born again. What a statement. What a thought. As Jesus closes out his teaching regarding the Holy Spirit's role in salvation, he presents one more truth regarding the nature of the new birth as opposed to that which the Jews understood and they held on to so tightly. New birth is necessary for salvation. New birth is a spiritual transaction. Third and final principle, new birth is evidenced, not seen. New birth is evidenced, not seen. Look with me at verse 7 through 10. We'll read them again. He says, Marvel not that I say unto thee, ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. And we'll stop at verse 8. Jesus gives an analogy here to the new birth that everyone can relate to. It's the analogy of wind. Now, wind is a somewhat unique element in nature. It is absolutely undetectable outside of its effect on its surroundings. Do you realize that? If you are inside and you want to find out if it's windy today, what would be your strategy? First thing that you'd probably do is look out a window and look toward what? The concrete building? No. If you want to know if it's windy, you look at a flag or a tree, leaves. You'll see the leaves blowing. You'll see the branches shaking. You'll see the flag flying in the air instead of just sitting down. Uh, when, where I work at the hospital, there's a flag right outside the door. And if I want to know how windy it is, I always just look to that flag. If the flag's blowing, I know. And I know what, what direction the wind is blowing too, which is wonderful. Sometimes it's blowing straight through the lobby and I know what direction the wind is blowing. Now, I don't have a window. How will I know if it's windy? Perhaps you might listen. You're going to listen to, if, it's, you, you, if you hear the wind, you are immediately assuming it's hitting a concrete wall, right? No. If it's maybe rustling in the trees, 
making the leaves rustle? If there's a poorly sealed door and it's whistling through the door? So perhaps you can't look out a window. Perhaps you hear nothing. Well, maybe you'll stick your hand outside and feel. And you'll feel the wind across your hand. What's the common thread throughout all of these ways in which we would know if the wind is blowing? They are absolutely reliant upon outside stimulus. They are absolutely reliant upon evidence. Because we can't see the wind. You would have no way to see if it was windy if there was nothing outside that was able to be manipulated by the wind. If you did not have nerves in your hand, you would not be able to tell if it was windy. Now, I can see things happening. If, it, if there's lightning, how do I know there's lightning? Because I see flashes. I can see it. Even if I don't feel it. I better hope I don't feel it. But with wind, you have to have an outside stimulus to show that the wind is there. You would not be able to hear wind if, you, if we didn't have something that was manipulated by the wind. You would not be able to see wind if you didn't have something that was manipulated by the wind. You would not be able to feel it if you didn't have nerves that could be manipulated by the wind. Now, let's parallel that analogy to the new birth, because this is what Jesus Christ is doing here. Jesus states that a man born of the Spirit is like the wind, or the Spirit is like the wind as he's born. The man is not like the wind, the spirit is like the wind. You cannot tell from where it comes. You cannot tell where it's going. The question, how can you tell when a person is born of the spirit? The answer, the effect of the spirit on the believer and those around him. Just as you cannot tell the exact spot where the wind begins or the extent of its influence, so too is the new birth. It is unquantifiable. It's mysterious. It's inexplicable. We cannot hold wind in our hands. You can't bottle up wind. You can take a can outside with a, with a lid and grab some wind as it comes by. When you open that can, you're not going to feel it fly out in your face. You can't do that. It's unquantifiable. It's mysterious. You can't hold it with your hands. You can't see it with your eyes. The only way you know it's there is because of the evidence of it. That is the spirit. That is the new birth. How do we know that we are born again? First John tells us all over the place how we know that we're born again. Let's read some of those verses. First John 5, 1. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone that loveth him that beget loveth him also that is begotten of him. First John 3, 9. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. For his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Now, 1 John, we know, is not a book preaching on how to be saved. He's speak, preaching to those who are already saved about how they can have fellowship with God. How they can see the evidence of their salvation through their actions. And so, we cannot translate 1 John into saying that if you sin, you're not saved. That We cannot do that because that would be improper interpretation of the scriptures. But what we do see from 1 John 3.9 is the man who is born of God... His, the evidence that he is born of God is that he rejects sin. 1 John 2.29 If ye know that he is righteous, ye know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. This whole idea of being born of God found throughout 1 John. 
1 John 3.14 We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. We have passed from death to life when we evidence love. 1 John 5.4 For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. The man that is born of God has faith. The man that is born of God is a man of love. The man that is born of God is a man that doeth righteousness. The man that is born of God is a man that doth not commit sin. 1 John 5.18 We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not. But he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. Again, we're not speaking of sinless perfection. We are speaking of the evidence of the Spirit. We've already quoted the fruit of the Spirit this evening. Let's, um, why not? Let's uh, quote the fruit of the Spirit again together. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Those are the fruits, the fruit, actually it's singular, the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. These evidences, how do we know that we're born again? We can't bottle it. We can't grasp it. We can't quantify it. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's the Spirit working in us. It's as the wind of the Spirit, if you will, blows against us that we can see the Spirit. It's as the wind of the Spirit blows against others through us that they can see the Spirit in us. The Spirit is quantified through its effect, not necessarily through the eye gate. Not necessarily through its being seen, but through its effect. Now, as I close, I'm going to hold off in part on the obvious question. We'll spend the next three weeks carefully understanding each of the Godhead's role in salvation and then our role in salvation at the end. And so I'm going to hold off on the um, particulars of the heavy salvation message until that last week. But the question still remains, are you born again? Have you ever been born of the Spirit? Is the evidence of the Spirit clear in your life? Have you been born again? Born, being a born again, as we understood, is necessary for salvation. It is salvation. If you have not been born again, then you are not saved. And so we must be born again. But though we won't have the full salvation message today, it doesn't mean that we should be passive throughout these weeks of learning. It doesn't mean that we should be passive even if we are confident that we are born again. The question then is, does, do our lives evidence the new birth? Are those fruit of the Spirit that we have just listed evidenced in our lives? Or is our life more characteristic of the works of the flesh? Does the flesh manifest itself more than the Spirit does? Are we allowing the Spirit to manifest itself in our lives? Let's pray together.